Sick Boy Podcast is a health and comedy show about what it's like to be sick. Wait, is that right? How can illness be funny? You'd be surprised. Okay. Sick Boy is hosted by me, Brian Stever. And me, Taylor McGilvery. And myself, Jeremy Saunders. Come on in and join us to melt your heart, learn something fascinating, and bust a belly laugh. Trust us, you'll be glad you did. You can find Sick Boy on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your pods. This is a CBC Podcast. Hey, I'm Talia Schlanger, sitting in for Tom Power. Welcome to Q. All week long on the show, we've been looking back at some of the biggest moments of the year. And of course, this year, as with every year, we lost some truly great artists and musicians. Some of them we were lucky enough to talk to before they passed, like Sinead O'Connor, Gordon Lightfoot, and Robbie Robertson. The song you're hearing right now, Up on Cripple Creek by the band, was written by Robbie Robertson. He's playing the guitar you're hearing, too. Robbie was one of the best of the best of Canadian songwriting, of rock and roll. He was the main writer for the band who gave us tunes like this one and The Night They Drove Old Dixie Down and The Wait. The Wait? Come on. Robbie was also a composer. He worked with Martin Scorsese on about 11 different feature films. The last one was Killers of the Flower Moon, which just came out a few months ago. Robbie died two months before the film was released, and the film is actually dedicated to him. A few years ago, Tom had this beautiful conversation with Robbie around the time a documentary came out about the band called Once Were Brothers. And Tom started off by asking Robbie what he thinks about when he hears the song Up on Cripple Creek. Here's Tom's conversation with the late Robbie Robertson. Certain things come back to you in it. And I was like, oh, my God, I remember in that third verse, I couldn't get I couldn't get the like something to rhyme with the last line. <laughs> There's all of these little pieces, you know, that that made up something that you go back to. It's just a natural reflex. I guess it's not often that you get a chance to hear it anymore, right? Well, you know, you hear it. It's still played around. And, uh, and I sometimes do think, God, they haven't got sick of that yet. <laughs> By the way, congrats on uh, leading the Toronto International Film Festival. How about that? Pretty good, hey? Yeah, I, you know, and they told me we've never done this before, to open the film festival with a documentary. And, um, and I have to say that Cameron, who, it, you know, made this happen. Cameron was, Bailey from TIFF. Yeah, 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 Cameron, he saw a very rough cut of the film, of a cut that I, if they'd ask me, I'd say, it's not ready to be seen at all yet. He saw this rough cut and decided, him and Randy Lennox decided, this should open the festival this year. And we were all somewhat astonished to hear that because, like I said, they've never had a documentary open it. And, be, and also a Canadian 
you know, co-production mm-hmm. um, on it too. So it's really, really a deep honor. I, I bet it is. So I want to talk a little bit about the new movie. I want to talk a little bit about the new record. And I figured the one track off the new record that sort of ties these two things together is is this one. Once we're brothers, brothers no more. We lost the connection after the war. We lost our connection after the war. Tell me about that song. Well, it is obviously a, a direct reflection of my experience in the brotherhood of the band. And, um, you know, when I think about, the, you know, that Richard Manuel, Rick Danko, and Lee Von Helm are no longer with us, um, it's a very deep sadness for me. And, uh, and we went through so much together and so many amazing things. Uh, in, in writing my book, Testimony, that is actually the origin of the uh, the documentary. Um, when I was writing that, it, there was so much to relive, so much to go into, so much incredible joys and risks and and everything. There is no, I, I, I'd put the story of the band up against any of them, the amazing experiences that we had. And so in this song, I was paying homage to that, and I was also addressing the sadness that I feel too that the you know three of the guys are no longer with us what what's the war in the beginning of the band with music from Big Pink and the band album and the records that we were making after that, there was a war going on and and when that war ended. You mean a literal the, the, war like the Vietnam War? The Vietnam War. When that when that war concluded, the band started to separate and go in different directions. You know, when you were looking at this documentary, because last time we spoke was for the book, which and the and the documentary is based on the book. You know, we talked a little bit about how you reflected on writing some of these memories down, and it seemed to all be very pleasant. And I'm I'm also aware that when you see or when you listen to something, it can be a more visceral experience than simply just remembering it. So when you sit down and actually watch these old clips of the band and, and the Hawks, man, and and I mean, what what emotions come to mind? How did you feel? It must have been hard at times. It's well, one of the extraordinary things for me that came out of this documentary was how heartfelt it is, how moving the documentary is. And I didn't know that that was going to be what we were going after and the result of it. And and when Martin Scorsese came in as executive producer on it, he really pointed out the value in that emotional thing that was coming across from the brotherhood of the band. And he was saying, you know, and he had suggestions, and they were really about, don't let this get in the way of that emotion. Don't let what get in the way of that emotion. Don't, because it was different ways of editing and storytelling and things. And he was saying, "When, when we go to that place that it is so heartfelt, 
don't cut away to this or do that or stay with that because it's it's that moving and it's that valuable. But then you have to actually live it again. Like, does it feel like does it feel like the same guy? Like, do you feel like the same guy who was king of Young Street? You know, back when you were with the with, with the Hawks and and playing with the band. Like, it's it's it must be amazing to relive that life in front of you. You know, I I look at it and and there is. You know, a very strong tie, and and there is, like you're saying, a bit of a distance too, because time has has passed, and I'm very much on a mission of working on what I'm doing today and what I need to be doing tomorrow. I'm not really big on redoing or reliving or anything necessarily being based on that. If it wasn't, if there wasn't so many stories to tell, if it wasn't such an extraordinary journey and experience, I would completely move on, and I wouldn't be here talking to you about you're, you're, it. You're not a nostalgic but, person. You're not someone who lives in the... You know, I appreciate all of it, you know, and I've been so fortunate to have had all of this musical being part of world-changing events and things and music and and all of that. But in the meantime, I'm busy. <laughs> you're flat I, out. You're still, you are. You're really busy. You're I'm making busy. records. You're scoring things. Yeah. Yeah. You can't. You can't. You, you don't want to sit on a margarita and listen to, you know, uh, Ophelia. <laughs> I, I do. I, I, I like Ophelia. It's a it's a fave song of mine that I wrote, but but I don't sit around thinking about it because I gotta yeah. figure out stuff. It's I my got, favorite too, by the way. Uh, yeah, I played it at a wedding over the over the summer. Oh really? Yeah, man. It still it still kills. It's a it's a great song. Though I added a yodel to the middle of it. I hope that's okay. Uh huh. Well, you know, you're still in that Cripple Creek mode. Yeah. So Marty Scorsese, you mentioned him earlier, the executive producer behind this film. You guys have been working together for a while. Take us back uh, uh, to, to the kind of first meeting of you guys. When do you remember first meeting Martin Scorsese? Oh, when I first met him, he had just made a movie called Mean Streets. And, and John Taplin, who was the road manager for the band, when he left... Um, he, w- he said, I'm going out in the world, I'm going to produce movies. So anybody who says that, you think, oh, great. Well, good luck with that, mm-hmm. right? And he went and he produced Mean Streets. And he says to me, listen, he said, there's this director, this guy that I'm working with. I think he's really quite amazing. Newsweek said, Mean Streets triumphantly heralds the arrival of Martin Scorsese. He was a kid, right? Yeah, they were, yeah, everybody was young. (laughs) And he said, and there's an actor in this movie. Oh my God, he's like, he's as good as any actor you've ever seen. It's, It's really something. So they set up a screening for me to see it. And after I saw the movie, Marty came to the screening room and said hello to me. And... And it was wonderful to meet him right after seeing his work mm. and seeing what he did in this movie and 
Bob De Niro and Harvey Keitel they they did in these early days and everything and it was like it was just overflowing with talent so when I met Marty I was like whoa this is you know, and the use of music in it everything so it, it really stuck with me and then when it came time that I was trying to figure out who would be good to direct the last waltz mm because of this special thing that I felt with Marty's connection to music, I thought, I want to start with him. I want to see if he'd be interested in this. And, you know, the rest is a beautiful story. Was it a, was it a hard sell? It was a tough sell because he was in the middle of directing a movie. And what, in a, what one? It's called New York, New York. Right. And when you're directing a movie, the studios hate it when you go and direct another movie <laughs> at the same time. They really, really don't like it. So we had to do this all underground and everything. And in the beginning, he said, I'm in the middle of doing this movie. They're, they're not going to let me do this. And then as we talked about the different artists that were going to be in the film, in, at the concert and everything, over the course of the evening, finally, he threw his arms in the air and says, I don't care. They can fire me. They can kill me. I don't care. I've got to do this. <laughs> so I was like, okay, because I just felt, it's one of those things in my gut. I just felt that he's the man to do this. And boy, was I right. My favorite moment of The Last Waltz always has been, and I think always will be, when Dr. John comes out and sings Such a Night. <laughs> And this past year, we lost Dr. John, the matriarch of Mac What do you remember of Dr. John at the at the last waltz? Well, I remember Dr. John from many different things. He was a friend and uh, and a fantastic musician and a fantastic traditionalist. He could tell you stories about music out of New Orleans that would make your hair stand on end. It was like, I, I just absorbed it. I just, I loved it when he would do this. So anyway, he was a pal of ours. And when we were doing the last waltz, we just thought, the doctor's got to be there. That's it. You know, <laughs> and so anyway, when he came and he comes out on the stage and he'd gone through his whole Grigri period and everything. Of He was like a voodoo priest. Yeah. You know? And now he was in a new stage. And he comes out in this beret and this pink shirt and everything. He's like a different guy. Comes out and he's smiling like a Cheshire cat. Sits on the piano and says, thankfulness to the band and, and all, all the boys. Fe- yeah. all, <laughs> all the fellas. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Thankfulness to the band and all the fellas. And he's looking over, and he's seeing the horn section. So he's thinking, I got to include them, too. Yeah. I want to go back to Marty just for a second. Can I call him Marty, you think? Um, well, I'll check. Okay, thank you. So you, you work together on The Last Waltz. Then you work with him on Raging Bull. I mean, I mean a, lot of, a lot of different things. I'm, I'll mention a couple of them, Gangs of New York. And, and now, The Irishman. Before we talk about that, can you... Have you been able to figure out or distill or can you why you guys continued to work together so well? Do you have something in common? Um, I think that we have a certain 
musical and film connection that we discovered early on when we were making The Last Waltz, that I was a movie bug. And I thought there was something so deep in him and his appreciation of music. And I thought that in the beginning. And as I got to know him more, it just went deeper and deeper. So we started out, he was turning me on to movies that I'd never seen. And it was a fantastic experience. And seeing them with him and through his eyes in some cases was so rewarding. And I was turning him on to music that he had not experienced before. Well, like, like a old rockabilly or R&B or pop or soul? Gospel, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. I mean, you know uh, fife and drum blues, uh, all kinds of things. And so this connection that we made just stuck. And then over the years, and then when he was doing Raging Bull, he said, uh, you know, I, 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 I need to get the source music for this movie done. Um, can you help me figure that out? Had you done work like this before? Had you done any scoring work? or No. 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 And I didn't know that I even wanted to. And... And I still don't know whether I want to. Um, But working with him is a different experience. You know, doing the music for his new movie, The Irishman, and we're talking every movie, we start from scratch. What are we going to do this time? And, you know, I'll have ideas, he'll have ideas. And in the process of doing this, I said... You know, I'm hearing this thing, and I, and it doesn't directly connect to anything with this movie, but it could be an interesting counterpoint. And I would describe something to him, a sound, a flavor to him. And he'd say, oh, that's good, that's good, as long as it doesn't sound like movie music. Aha, aha, now we're talking my language. Because doing a traditional movie score... He doesn't need me for that. There's a thousand John people. John Williams and all those guys. There's yeah. all these yeah. people yeah. that do that, and they do it really well. But I'm not interested in that, and thankfully, neither is he. <laughs> is the writing process the same? Does writing music now, either for The Irishman or for this movie, Cinematic, does it feel the same as when you were writing music for the band in the 60s and 70s? You know, I've always been strongly influenced by movies, and I've... For many years, I have thought that in the songs that I'm writing, they're like little movies. Even way back. Oh, yeah, yeah, you're right. The Nettle Dixie Dan sort of a, a, a movie. Cripple Creek's sort of a movie. Yeah. And so I used to read... King Harvest is a movie. Yeah, this is yeah. this all makes sense to me. Yeah. 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 Um, Stage Fright is named after a movie. Alfred Hitchcock made a movie called Stage Fright. Yeah. And... Uh, you know what? The Wait's a movie. When I when I sing The Wait, I, can, I picture everybody in it. There you go. You know? See, and, and when I was writing these songs, I was reading classic movie scripts. 
I found a place where I could buy these scripts in New York at Gotham Book Mart. And so I would go in there and Janice Films had all of these scripts. And so I could read this script for a John Ford movie or for an Ingmar Bergman movie or for a Louis Bunuel or a Fellini or Kurosawa or Howard Hawks or Orson Welles, all of these things. And that became my reading material because I was so fascinated by how, when I would look at these movies, I was like, wait a minute, where does this start from? Where does this begin from? And when I was very young, if I hadn't have got the music bug, the music addiction at such an early age, mm. I would have ended up in movie land, maybe as a screenwriter or as a director. Does it go for music too? Like if you hear a Beethoven piece, if you hear like Beethoven 7, do you want to see the score? Um, I, I, I do see images in that, and I do think sometimes what that would be a good accompaniment accompaniment too. And there's been many cases in working with Martin Scorsese over the years that I have used music. Um, I, I used to be a big admirer of Christoph Penderecki's mm -hmm. composing. Mm -hmm. And so years ago, years ago, I, I used to, we were pen pals for a while. I was writing to Pandoreski. Really? And saying, you know, I make music, it's a different kind of music, but I loved your threnody for the victims of Hiroshima. Isn't that stunning, hey? And he would write me back and say, oh my goodness, I listened to your record in this, these songs and everything. I love this music. And so for a, a while there, we were sending things. <laughs> then in Shutter Island, I said to Marty, I think Pendereski's music could be a centerpiece in this. And it was. That's a little more of Up on Cripple Creek by the band. Before that, you heard the first part of Tom's conversation with the late Robbie Robertson. Today, we remember the incredible Canadian songwriter and rock musician who passed away earlier this year. Coming up, you'll hear more of Tom's conversation with Robbie. They'll dive deeper into the destructive forces that spelled the end for the band and what it took to harness their magic one last time. Think of your favorite one-hit wonder. Or that overpriced toy your parents would never let you have. Or that TV show that no one else remembers because it was canceled way too soon. Now what if we could fix it? 
I'm Francesca Ramsey. And I'm Delon Grant. And after 20 years of friendship, we are now hosting a new nostalgia podcast called Let Me Fix It. Each episode, we'll dig into our favorite celebrities, shows, and brands of yesteryear, and then imagine what it would take to repackage them for relevance today. Think of our show as an intervention, but with way less stakes. So subscribe to Let Me Fix It wherever you get your favorite podcasts. That's The Wait, a timeless song from the band's first album, Music from Big Pink. It's from 1968. I'm Talia Schlanger, sitting in for Tom Power, and today on Q, we remember the late Robbie Robertson, who's one of the many music legends we lost this past year. A few years ago, Tom had the honor of speaking with Robbie right around the time a documentary about the band came out. It's called Once Were Brothers. In this second part of their conversation, Robbie reflects on what the band was, what it could have been, and why it ended. But Tom started by asking Robbie Robertson about one specific lyric from this song. Nazareth is Nazareth, Pennsylvania, right? Mm -hmm. The home of the Martin Guitar Factory. That's right. Right. (laughs) (laughs) This wasn't in the script, but I'm just dying to know. Where did that first line, that first narrative come from? I pulled into Nazareth feeling about half-assed dead. Just need to find a place where I can hang my head. Like, What do you remember about writing that first verse? Hmm. Gee, it reminds me of the story of, uh, of Jesus. Uh, my goodness, I never thought of that before. <laughs> the, the, the weight reminds you of the story of Jesus? Well, I pulled into Nazareth, you know, and there's no room at the inn. Yeah. Hello? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, that did dawn on me, but it really, it, it came from, I'm sitting there thinking, I got to write something. What am I going to write about? And, and we talk about this in the Once for Brothers documentary. Yeah. Yeah. And I look inside the guitar, and it says Nazareth. And I think, I like the sound of that word, Mm -hmm. Nazareth. How about I pulled into Nazareth, Mm -hmm. you know? (laughs) And so all of these elements, they just started to come together and fit together. And the song, too, when I was 16, and I went from Toronto and I took a train and I went down to the Mississippi Delta to join up with Ronnie Hawkins and the Hawks. That impression of for me going to the holy land of rock and roll, this is where blues and gospel and rockabilly and New Orleans, all of this grew out of the ground. Whoa, I'm going there. I am, you know, my dream is to go to the, to this fountainhead of rock and roll, mm. and I'm going mm. holy. And so when I got there, all these characters and all of these things started to gather in a place in my imagination. And then some years later, when I was writing this song, I reached into that attic of all of those memories and all those characters and they just started to pour out in this song. It's interesting because I see you in the same way I see uh, Elton John. I'll tell you this about me. I grew up in a, in a in small town, Newfoundland. Well, I grew up in big town, Newfoundland, which is a small town anywhere else. And I listened to bluegrass music, Bill Monroe and his bluegrass boys. I was obsessed with Bill Monroe. We were watching that night in Kentucky. 
the beautiful harvest moon. And I was obsessed with the Grand Ole Opry, and I was obsessed with the Ralph Stanley and the Stanley Brothers. Mm-hmm. And I went down to Nashville, and for the first time, I was like, this is where, this is the home of where everything, this is Mecca. This is where everything I've ever loved is. And I realized people were just kind of living there. That was just their everyday life. So you bring me to mind of Elton John is because I spoke to uh, Bernie Taupin one time about Elton John. And he said, people often said that we wrote about America the way America was seen as opposed to the way it actually was because we loved it so much. We were so far away from it. We had this romantic idea of it and that America really loved the way we wrote about it as fans of America. Did you ever feel like that? Um, I didn't feel... Probably like you know Bernie and Elton coming into this this distant world. To me, it was just down the river, mm. you know. Mm. And so I didn't feel that distant. But I do remember Bernie and Elton bringing me the first copy of a record they made. They said this is in honor of the band. Your music inspired this, and we wanted to give it to you so you didn't think we were trying to rip you off. <laughs> and, uh, and they made two albums that they said were completely Tumbleweed Connection and, and another one that they said was completely inspired by the band. And it's good old country come by in my bones Just the sweetest sound my ears have ever known A lot of groups back then did that. A lot of groups now, my friend. A lot of groups wearing snap plaid shirts and cowboy hats and have beards and dress like me. I mean, for God's sake, I probably owe you a royalty for this outfit, Robbie. I know. I'll collect after. (laughs) Did you feel a responsibility telling, I mean, uh, as you mentioned, a number of members of the band aren't still with us. Did you feel a responsibility telling their story in this film? I felt like I'm a storyteller. And it's one of the stories and one of the great stories that I have to tell. So, um, yeah, and because, you know, as we've said, it was directly inspired by my book, Testimony. Um, All of these things, you know, they just one thing leads to another, leads to another. So just because my story, a big part of that is this brotherhood. And is this experience with the band? And and so if they were going to tell my story, that's got to be part of it. I, I mean, I, and I want to ask this as gently and respectfully as I can. Uh, you know, what's yours and Garth's relationship like now? I thought I might see a little bit more of him in, in the film. Are you guys okay? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But Garth is, he, he's always been, he's a very secluded type of character. He lives in his own world. It's the way he is. He doesn't want to be disturbed. And um, and he is just still to this day, one of the most in, unusual, most extraordinary improvising musicians that's ever walked the earth. Is it amazing? He took the band's music to another level. Um, I have so much respect and so much love for Garth, and um, but and we, you know, and Daniel wanted him in the film and everything, but it, it, he's 
he's very hard to capture. Mm. And, you know, <laughs> and also I think at this stage too, you know, there's probably some health issues that play into this too that doesn't, you know, doesn't make him feel like I've, I got to get out more often or something, yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah. I get, you know what? You don't get to be that much of a genius without me being maybe a little bit eccentric too, you know? There you go. Oh, and he was born that way. He was weird even when he was in the band? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, he was weird before he ever met the man. <laughs> uh, I, I want to talk about something a little tough that came up in the film. In, in the film, you t- spend a lot of time, um, or spend some time discussing substance abuse in the band, you know, alcohol to harder drugs like heroin. And it, it made, we were, my producer and I were talking about it. If we were left with this feeling that there's this alternate universe where these things didn't enter the equation and the band stayed stronger for longer. Do you feel like there was a missed opportunity of the band that was squandered with drugs and alcohol? There was an effect from it. There's, there's no doubt about that. But we were living in a time period where experimenting with drugs was so common. I don't know that we knew anybody that wasn't on the same wavelength. And in the late 60s and in the 70s, it was just the way it was. Mm. So you didn't... It's easy now to look at it and say, whoa, maybe that was not the right thing to do or something. While we were in it, it was very difficult to point any fingers and to say, oh, well, you know. And there there was struggles in the group because of the effects and the distraction that drugs can bring into something. And it affected the relationship. And it affected the music. It affected my writing because I could write for this group when everybody was present, when everybody was right there, when this was a very particular group of of five members that everybody played such a pivotal role. And if somebody drifted off, it just wasn't the same. And and so it did, and and I... And it was difficult. I, I, it took me some time to actually gravitate to a place where I thought, you know what? I'm just going to accept anything. I'm not going to take it personal. You had some resentment afterwards, maybe a little bit? I felt bad that I thought, I know when we're in this thing together, when the gang is really, really supportive of one another, we can make magic. And when it's not like that, <clears throat> then we're, we're trying, but we're, we, we can't be successful because there's something in the way. Yeah. And, and as that got deeper and everything, I thought, well, what am I writing for? Why am I killing myself over here, you know, when somebody's not going to even show up? Yeah. Or if they do show up, they're not going to be in a condition to do our best work. And so that offended me in a certain way. And then over a long period of time, by the time we got to making Northern Lights, Southern Cross, I was like, if they show up, they show up. If they don't, they don't. 
I'm, I'm going to hit it. I'm going to try to hit it out of the park one more time here, and I'm going to force these guys to make this magic. And everybody came together, and we did some work that I'm very, very proud of. Ophelia was one of those songs. It certainly is, yeah. And Acadian Driftwood, and It Makes No Difference. It, it was a joyous experience, and everybody did rise to the best of their ability to that occasion, but it wasn't a lasting thing. And because it wasn't a lasting thing, <clears throat> we had to resort, and wonderfully so, to the last walls. Mm. What is it about? I, I what, what is it about the? artistic and creative mind that can lead to that kind of darkness, I wonder. Because I, I think so much about you know, friends of mine who I've lost to drugs and alcohol, who are musicians, they were performers, were stand-up comedians, you know? I wonder what it is. I wonder what it is about, about that mindset you have to have to be a creative that can lead you to the, that dark path. Well, a lot of people that aren't creative go to that dark path, you're too. Right, you're right. So, but there's something in human nature that... There is a need to walk on the wild side. There's, there's a need to play with danger. There is something about walking that close to the edge and really, really challenging, almost falling off. Mm. And I went to some of those places too, yeah. but I never had, I, I, there was something I didn't have, whatever that chip is, that that would make me say, ah, who cares? I'm, you know, I I just wasn't a, a true addict. I wasn't a true alcoholic. I was just somebody that would chippy with ideas. Right. Um, this is this is an amazing film. It's a really amazing record. You know, an interesting thing about the film was that the director of the film, Daniel Rohr, is that you pronounce his last yeah. name? Yeah, Rohr. He wasn't even alive when the band were together. I mean. And in fact, a lot of young people who are fans of yours weren't around when the band was first around. They're going to watch this film. There's also people who are going to watch this film and, and discover the band. Um, is that is that ever overwhelming to you that there's new generations all the time, not just appreciating your music, but also dressing like it, singing it, being inspired by it? The discovery process for people is so fantastic. And the idea that a young person could say, whoa, I never heard that before. Yeah. You know, and they don't even know what an effect that that had on the culture and on the music and all of those things. When this might have been the most untrendy group that, you know, in, in rock and roll history, it's just we weren't cut from that cloth of like, oh, here's what's happening. Mm. Let's go in that direction. And we weren't trying to, to we, we never wanted to ever do something different just to be different. We just weren't on the wavelength. We weren't in touch with that thing. We were together for several years before we made music from Big Pink. We were honing our craft and woodshedding and gathering musics, 
gathering musicalities in the Chitlin circuit everywhere we went, from the deep south all the way up to Canada. Uh, you know, there, it, this was part of our education and part of our discovery process. So when someone, when you say, oh, my God, somebody just heard this song by the band, they were like, this is very cool. Or if they're going to see this film or hear this new record that I make, whatever it is, that discovery process is something that gives me a little chill inside. Robbie, thanks for coming in. Thank you. That's it for this episode, but you can find another one in your feed right now. It is my conversation with Canadian musician Sleepy Jean. She sets up a song from her debut full-length album, and it's got a fascinating family story behind it. Her family is from Uganda, and they had to flee political persecution in the 70s. As you can imagine, that's had an effect that has rippled for generations, including to Sleepy Jean, who's used some of the inspiration from that story in her music. You can find that in your podcast feed right now. I'm Talia Schlanger, sitting in for Tom Power. I'll see you next time. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.